Hi, this is Beth Capici and welcome to the Never Perfect Podcast. I'm a psychologist and I believe that embracing the fact that no aspect of life is perfect actually makes us happier and healthier and motivates us to achieve more. It also helps us become more real and compassionate with ourselves and others. In my counseling office, I deal with a little bit of everything. So in this podcast, you'll also probably be hearing a little bit of everything. Not only professional advice, but also some of my favorite and least favorite personal stories. I'm also going to be interviewing people who are brave enough to share their stories with us. I believe that everyone has a lot to teach and a lot to learn no matter what their background is and in spite of their imperfections. You don't have to be perfect to be inspiring. Today, I have a special guest, and she and I are both having a first. Um, this is Shannon Morgan. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you very much. So excited to be here. Thank you for being here. So this is Shannon's first podcast yes. experience. <laughs> and one of our mutual therapist friends, Carla Myers, told me that she would be amazing at this. And it's been six months in the making due to some procrastination on my end. And so now she's here. And the kind of fun thing for me is this is the first time I've ever had a podcast recording with someone I've never met before you got to my house tonight. So many firsts. I know, it's so exciting. <laughs> so just a little bit about Shannon and then we will launch in. She is a licensed clinical social worker and we will possibly abbreviate abbreviate that is LCSW and she has been doing addictions work for over 15 years in Georgia and Tennessee and not sure if there's any other states and there's that no, it? those are the two that's okay. enough <laughs> that's enough um, she is the program coordinator for Hamilton County Recovery Court and she will explain that a little bit um, later and she has an amazing story personally in her own history with addiction and recovery, and now doing work that she's very passionate about. So she is going to tell us about her personal and professional experience. And she's so kind to be here on a weeknight. She works full time, very, very busy. Um, also married with a dog and likes rock climbing and other outdoor activities. Any others that are hobbies that are fun to mention? That takes up quite a lot of time between working and <laughs> climbing. So. Yeah. Rock climbing is not something you do for like 15 minutes, is no. it? Yeah, it is time consuming. <laughs> Man, that's a, yeah, a, a big hobby. That's really cool. And your husband does that as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's so neat. What yeah. a great hobby and a great way to deal with stress. It is. It definitely is. Absolutely. See, I respect that. I'll have to hear more about that later. <laughs> I have very little experience with rock climbing. I did go rappelling once. Yeah. Well, there you go. And I have a fear of heights. So it was very odd to like go backwards off the edge. Of yes, the cliff. definitely. I but can see that. <laughs> that's probably one of the scariest things I've ever done, but I'm glad I did it. I don't know if I could rock climb, but anyway, that's a tangent, <laughs> but that's so cool. So, um, yeah. Do you want to just 
talk a little bit about your history first or or would you like to talk about your work first? I'll let you choose. Well, probably we can start with my history a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of ease in as, as in a time frame. Yes, chronologically. <laughs> chronologically speaking. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, I got sober when I was pretty young. I started um, kind of classic teenager stuff, dabbling in, in little things first, and obviously kind of got worse and worse through time. Um, you know, I think for me it was – I was genetically kind of predisposed. I have a lot of addiction in my family, mm. um, alcoholism specifically. So mm-hmm. I, we, I always say like I was kind of, it was already in the cards for me. My sister is also in long-term recovery. So she went through the same thing I went a little bit later on in life. So okay. we, we were kind of like marked for it. Yes. So, so um, you know, I mean, I think it was, it's interesting. I, I really was like the classic case of, you know, back when in the 90s they had those those commercials on television where it was like, if your child is doing this, this, and this, you know, uh-huh. they might be having a, you know, a drug problem. And that was very much myself. You know, everything was kind of to the T. I started hanging out with the, you know, the wrong crew and grades started dropping, skipping school. And, you know, I think for me, I... I, I want to say that I, I feel like I was almost lucky that I started using drugs also because mm-hmm. that helped me to like plummet fairly quickly. It mm-hmm. became extremely obvious that this was a problem for me. Um, I, I was not like other kids, you know, using occasionally. I, it became daily for me really quickly. Um, it escalated fast and then it was more obvious. It was more obvious. Yeah. So... Um, you know, within a couple of years, I started to get into some pretty significant trouble and, you know, I got arrested and um, I was placed into treatment um, when I was very young. I think the first time I, w- I was probably 15. Um, and I, you know, obviously, I think with the substance use that really also magnified some mental health stuff. I was mm. dealing with some pretty significant depression um, mm-hmm. back then. And so you know, once treatment started and like the the trouble started, it all kind of fell apart very quickly. And then mm-hmm. everything just seemed to kind of like bam, 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 you know. Kind of snowball. Snowball. Yeah, definitely. I put my parents through the ringer, um, you yeah. know, and I was the, you know, classic. I mean, I was just like the straight A student. I, you know, I rode horses when I was young. And then just all of a sudden I was, you know, it went from there to I was running away from home and living in a motel with, you know, folks that I should have no business being You're around. acting out. Dropped out of high school. Wow. Yeah. So it, it my story's interesting in that like things got bad very quickly. Um, was it like a two year period? It was three or four years, I think, in in all of it. Um, And so, you know, for me, I look back and I I think like, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit. I was lucky in the sense that I did have, you know, family that was very involved, um, probably Uh (laughs) over-involved and, you know, quickly intervened. Um, Uh And so I was introduced to the whole treatment realm pretty quickly. But I think that also really magnified the issues because despite every you know consequence that I had at hand including going back to treatment I could not stop using mm. you know for anything and so um 
yeah, I mean, towards, you know, towards the end I was, I mean, it was just completely unmanageable. Um, like I said, ran away from home from a, you know, pretty good family living in the suburbs to this like really shady area of Atlanta living in, yeah, the, totally in a suburban lodge. You. <laughs> changed you into a different person. It really did. Wow. It really did. So just quick side question, I guess, mm-hmm. is do you think besides the family history, there was anything that you were medicating like anxiety or depression or family yeah, issues? I definitely think so. You know, and I think when you look at like the root cause of a lot of folks that have addiction, mm-hmm. I think it, it's so much, you know, chicken or the egg. Right. And mm-hmm. I think really for me, it started with the drugs. I think the drugs and, and the alcohol kind Cause of magnified. Exactly. You know, I didn't have, and I, and you know, of course in every treatment you kind of like go back, what caused this? You know, of course, I had a super dysfunctional family, but, you know, a lot of us did. It wasn't that dysfunctional, I think. You know, I'm sure looking back, there were some things that, but I didn't have an incident that I was really trying to 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 avoid and cover right. up whereas i've worked with so many folks that it was the opposite you know they had some sort of trauma or they had some you know sort of significant mental health or anxiety yeah. and they used to soothe that now certainly once i discovered that using would soothe my depression you know then of course i mm-hmm. was able to self-medicate through that mm-hmm. um, but i think it's so it's just different for for yeah. everyone and you know, I, I, they still don't really know what causes it. Is it completely genetics? Is it completely mental health? Is it completely trauma? You know, I think yeah, there's mix. just no one size yeah. fits all for it. So for my story, I really do think that it was more leaning towards the genetic piece, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, wow. That's interesting. So you're very thankful that your family had insurance or had the awareness or the motivation or the finances to pay for treatment and get you help. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think, you know, a part of that, if, if I'm being completely honest, a lot of that was probably too, that I was really difficult to deal with and it felt probably a lot easier to send me away mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and have other folks try to fix me because they were kind of at their wits end. Um, so right. yeah, that's a big piece too is, you know, I think that that was for me, a lot of the, when I look back, maybe some of the motivation was to, you know, that, that those were a lot of promises that were made to my parents when they were making these decisions about treatment is mm-hmm. we're going to fix this for you. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a big motivation for a lot of parents to send, you know, these kids elsewhere, um, mm-hmm. you know, although sometimes places that we're sending them to aren't necessarily the best of places. So, which is, yeah. Yeah. One thing you said that stood out, excuse me, was the, the idea of powerlessness. Like, even though you were aware there was an issue, it Mm. was like a, there was a power over you that was really difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I know that's a big, you know, phrase in the AA literature is just admitting we're powerless Mm -hmm. over an addiction. Um, So that's, that's interesting to hear that even though you weren't at some point in denial that there was a problem, you were just like, I can't stop this on my own. Cannot stop. And I think for the last year or two in my addiction, I was fully aware that there was a problem Mm -hmm. actually, even at that young age, um, Mm -hmm. it was quite easy to put two and two together because I could not stop. Right. Right. And so, yeah. 
Wow. So you had your own personal journey with addiction and recovery at a very young age. Mm-hmm. And then you became interested in social work in college. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I um, I did the 12 step route. That was kind of my way after I had gotten out of treatment. Um, the last final time was in Utah and came home to Atlanta. I knew due to previous treatments, especially, you know, kind of when you're in a setting where you're far away from home and Mm -hmm. you're getting sober and then you come back home where everything was going on from before if you don't kind of like surround yourself with some sense of community of other folks in recovery it can lead you to just kind of go back to what you were doing before Mm -hmm. for me that was um that was the way that i you know ended up being able to stay sober was through the 12-step community and i was lucky i was in Atlanta. So Mm -hmm. at that time, there were many other young folks that Mm. were in recovery that were, you know, we had a really strong community. Mm -hmm. And I think had not had it not been for that, I don't know that I would have been able to to stay sober. And I it was interesting, I listened to your other podcast, and and I loved to hear her perspective on the 12 step community, because there's a lot there's a lot that goes really well. Yes. <laughs> and then there's some flaws there, you know? Right. And I think that if I look back to as a really young person, you know, getting sober in a community with a lot of other folks that maybe aren't always doing so well themselves, uh-huh. right? And it can actually be fairly unhealthy as well. And, right. and so, you know, I think for a lot of folks, they do struggle with the the 12-step concepts for many reasons. You know, I think that one thing that I have seen is is I think that there's been kind of an evolution in that in that way of um, you know I think there's a different language that you're starting to hear now you know when I first got sober there was a lot of like shame and guilt and like uh-huh. you know it was a lot of um, a lot of preaching and a lot of telling <laughs> you what to do and you know it felt um, it could feel really unhealthy at times but it's interesting now especially you know, as a as a person that's older, when, when I go into a meeting, especially with folks that are a little bit on the on the younger side of age, uh-huh. uh, you hear this like more like Brene Brown tone coming in uh-huh. to the discussion, and it's really kind of a cool thing because I think that 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 is an important shift. Uh-huh. Um, I think that especially for folks that are coming in early in recovery, we we do we feel so much shame and guilt, and I think that when we're kind of in that space of where that's being magnified yes that can be a really difficult place to be so right yeah the self-compassion is just so important and Mm. of course from other people as well um yeah and i love how grateful you seem to be with just recognizing the privilege sort of of you know, getting and it being in a city where you could find good groups. Oh my gosh. I mean, and, and if I look back and I think that that is one of the things, and we were kind of talking about this earlier, I think that the very unfortunate part of addiction is a lot of it has to do with luck, right? Mm. Like where, how you grew up, where you grew up, what resources were available to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I look back and my experience in my recovery, I do feel like was was filled with with a lot of privilege, you know? And so it feels, I'm grateful for that, mm-hmm. but I also 
I resent that, you yeah. know, I, I do. I, it's, I had, um, like survivor's guilt almost. Almost. Yeah. I mean, and really that, I mean, this past weekend I was in Atlanta for a very dear friend's funeral that oh. overdosed. Um, and you know, when you think about that, did, did I deserve to, to be oh. able to, to stay sober more than him? Absolutely wow. not. Right. So if I look back at our track record too, he's a much better person than I've ever been. So oh. it's it's an interesting kind of perspective, you know, when we when we really look at why this all works out. I'm not really, <laughs> I don't have that part of it figured out other than I think that that was for me a huge motivation when I was in treatment. You know, that and the fact that I had a lot of really amazing counselors at some of the places that I that I was at that mm -hmm. were in recovery themselves and were able mm -hmm. to share their experience and speak to me in a way that I really understood. And mm -hmm. I felt like they could understand me for the first mm. time. And so, and I also encountered counselors that I didn't quite feel that with, you know? Mm. And so being that I had experienced so much, you know, throughout, you know, my mm. using and, and then early in recovery, especially kind of my bit of unique experience as a very young person mm -hmm. in recovery. This is just kind of, I felt like the the path that I was supposed to take. And mm -hmm. so I felt like I wanted to be able to be a part of allowing people that might not have the opportunity mm. to have treatment, actually be able to get treatment, right? So that's so inspiring to hear the way you have used your experience and your compassion and care for other people and and recognizing you don't deserve it any more than anyone else mm -hmm. um you don't deserve it any less but everyone deserves an equal chance at being healthy mm -hmm. and having the best possible life and you want to give something back right. and reach as many people as you can to help them find their way to the freedom that you have in a healthy lifestyle mm -hmm. and that's just amazing. Okay, we have to stop and laugh right now. <laughs> kitty, kitty. I saw that happening the minute that she was like, there is cheese on this table. <laughs> you were ahead of me. So our little cat, Blue, we have a little <laughs> charcuterie board here. Did not make it, just to be clear. I could never make anything that beautiful. But um, yeah, the cat, <laughs> oh, you were ahead of me realizing the cat was headed for the food. I saw the eyes lock and I was like, I know exactly <laughs> what's about to happen. Talk about predatorial. <laughs> I want that. That's too funny. Um, but oh, I love to hear your passion for helping people and how you're using your own, you know, addiction and hard part of your story to bring good to people and also just to reach more people. And I just, I love the humility so much. I mean, humility inspires me about as much as anything. And that's really amazing and remarkable. So um, anyway, okay. So off from the cat to <laughs> your, your desire to have the courts can help more people with these as you said, evidence-based treatments that are high quality treatments mm -hmm. um, and very well-researched. Um, so, yeah, well, so what would you say has kind of been the most, I don't know, rewarding part of your mission as an addiction specialist? Oh man. Or parts, let's not oh, say yeah. parts. <laughs> Many parts. There's the most. 
I think it's I think it's overall it's been that um, in my experience I, I was introduced um, when I started my grad school program in, mm-hmm. in college I had the opportunity to do my internship at the DeKalb County Drug Court um, mm-hmm. in Atlanta mm-hmm. and I was just so these folks had been through so much in their lives. I mean, the struggles that, you know, so many of our of our participants had experienced in their life and the fact that again, a lot of folks did not have any access to any sort of resources to be able mm. to even begin to think about treatment and getting help or, you know, getting any sort of help. Yeah, and so they don't know where to go. And this really unfortunate way Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that you know you get arrested for some drug-related crime and you you know I always said once once that cycle starts once you get arrested the one Mm -hmm. time it's almost like the universe just puts some sort of target on you and then it just happens again and again and Mm. you know when you look at the statistics you know I think the the really like pivoting moment of of criminal justice reform is when they actually started to do the work and the research on is this working you know mm-hmm. when we changed our mentality to like the whole lock them up thing mm-hmm. right did that actually work yeah and the answer was absolutely not yeah right the repeat so, offenses are just probably off the charts and, and it is and it is and if you look at the the numbers to show i mean it's like 70 to 80 percent of folks that are released after serving some sort of sentence due to a drug-related charge are re-arrested within the first six to 12 months, Mm. you know? And so, and that happens over and over and over again. You have to say that this is not, this is not the proper solution. I mean, there's just no denying that. And so when you even get, you know, the the entire criminal justice system to say, we have to, we have to look at this. Mm -hmm. um, That's really when drug courts started to come about, you know, and, and there was the first drug court it's very early on in, in Miami and they came up with this crazy idea, you know, of like, let's give these folks treatment uh-huh. and give them some like full service support for for a long time. Uh-huh. You know, let's not just give them like the 28 days and then good luck kind of thing. Right. And, you know, it the the drug court model didn't really get a whole lot of love till some time later when it just became undeniable like this Mm -hmm. is a win-win for everyone the success rates are you know are showing and it's also saving taxpayers money you know it it caught it it usually costs double the amount of what you would spend on one person to do a prison sentence per day mm. than it does to put someone through a recovery court program, right? So way cheaper and way more effective. And so you're kind of like, okay, well, <laughs> we're you know, we're 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 a win-win, yeah. Right? And so I think that that kind of for me was the the beginning of of this love for getting to see folks that otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to get that support that they have always needed. Mm. Um, and so in this, like I said, this unfortunate way, they're getting into the criminal justice system, but finally the criminal justice system is saying, let us actually provide some support. Um, and I think that, you know, the the really great thing about drug courts and how, and, and how they continue to evolve, mm-hmm. because even when I got into to that world in, in 2000, 
for mm-hmm. to now. The language is changing, the practices are changing, you know, and I think one of the the best things about that model was it was kind of the marriage between the treatment world and the criminal justice world. Mm. And the combination really works because you have this, you know, the criminal justice piece where it allows for time, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. it allows for kind of a little bit more supervision. And then the treatment is out actually allowed to like settle in and work because yeah. you have that time and that supervision and mm-hmm. you have those resources to provide all of these wraparound services, mm. you know? And so I think that that part of it was when really, and, and, and you have to look at, and I've talked to you about this a little bit before, mm-hmm. the criminal justice side of things had to really look at themselves and say, this isn't working, but also so did treatment, the treatment world for a long time, you know, we just kind of like did stuff, right? I yeah. mean, even when I first got just into total trial and error, you know, my first job, I remember they were like, all right, do an anger management group. And yeah. I was like, all right, well, what do we do in that? And they're like, anger management, just figure it out, you know? <laughs> and so you just kind of like pulled materials and did stuff that you felt like maybe was helpful. And, you know, I think that that was you know, as we look at kind of what the success rates have been for certain modalities, we we did some things wrong back then. We did mm-hmm. a lot of things wrong. Mm-hmm. And so when the criminal justice side of things came into play, the deal was if we're gonna give you money to do this, you actually have to prove that this is gonna be successful. Mm-hmm. And so that is really when with the drug court world, we started to do all of this research and create all of this kind of, you know, these standards on what are evidence-based practices, what are best practices. And if we're gonna allow you to, to take these folks away from us from the criminal justice system and give them treatment, then you need to actually prove that this is helping. And so right. we did, you know? Wow. And so it's a really cool thing to be able to say like, you know, you all were part of the pioneers and really kind of not just regulating, but having a science and a research-based treatment plan that the government or the cities or counties were willing to back financially because mm-hmm. they could see the proof is in the pudding. Exactly. That's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. That's so good. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah. It must be really neat to see that happening, kind of have a front row seat as mm-hmm. things are really evolving in a much better direction. It's really, I was, I was talking to one of my, uh, one of my team members today who's in in the in a treatment provider as well and mm-hmm. he's been working in the in the drug court context for a long time and we were like yeah you know we were we were in criminal justice reform before it was cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah right when it was like the what do you call the cowboy i forget what you call that era in history where everybody there was no, no police and no regulations yeah wow the wild west the that's wild west because that's really what it was for a oh, long time man so. That's so amazing. So you all see some really good results and people turning their lives around and getting kind of a very more grounded lifestyle mm-hmm. and reintegrating with the community. And I think that that's kind of been one of the the coolest pieces to watch as well, as I think that one of the biggest pushes um, kind of in our world was that we really needed to start to measure what these folks actually needed mm-hmm. and be able to prove that we're meeting those needs, mm. right? And so we we assess for you know risk and needs when they first come in. Mm. And we're able to develop this treatment plan that's going to meet every single one of those needs that you know they actually need. So it's not just, you know, we're gonna provide treatment, we're also gonna help with getting folks out in the community and, you know, 
finding pro-social, we call it activities and mm. getting them back into doing something that they love. And that was one of the greatest things that we were able to do in Atlanta was we created this thing we called the Social Recovery Initiative mm. to where we had, you know, we had like community partners all over the city and we did all this really great stuff. We had, you know, our folks rock climbing. We had them, Aww. you know, we took them up here actually once to do, you know, a whitewater rafting trip and camping mm. at the beach. And they would do, you know, poetry night and just Braves games and, you know, all sorts of stuff like oh, that. Right. And so it also shows people that, you know, there's, there's life after all of this as well, right? And so. So that's kind of what social recovery would be defined as, mm -hmm. is just social activities that are healthy and fun and to see life can be so much fun mm -hmm. without drugs and alcohol. Exactly. Neat. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it too. And I think for, for myself included, I think that that's a huge push to use, right? Is that's kind of, that becomes who you are mm -hmm. and that becomes what you do and a big part of your everyday life. And so, when you take that away, it's like, you know, life can seem boring. Who am I? And what am I going to do? Right? right. And so right. part of that's figuring that out because there has to be some sort of fun. Yes. You know, and some sort of joy and passion in our life. And so I think that that's a huge thing for folks in recovery. You know, there's that. I don't know if you've ever watched this, this great TED talk. And he talks about like the opposite of addiction is connection. Oh, yeah. You know, and so I think that that is so huge as you know, I think a lot of folks get into this cycle because, you know, we feel connected to drugs, but we also feel connected to that lifestyle, mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, early in recovery, we can feel really isolated and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so that community piece, feeling connected to other people or to some sort of a passion or activity mm -hmm. is, is hugely important. So, yeah. And that seems like one of the most devastating pieces to me is when people are looking to a substance to either, you know, numb pain mm -hmm. or to, to create pleasure, but they stop too early and they don't look for something better that will numb the pain with no after effects like right. a hangover or terrible withdrawal um, or they can find something healthy to deal with their pain that's that's not passive because really you know leaning your head back and drinking or you know swallowing a drug or inhaling a drug that's not that's a passive way to to numb pain but it creates new problems and mm -hmm. shame and if if you know they could just look a little further to you know support groups or therapy or you know more fun and wholesome ways like sports mm -hmm. or rock climbing or anything just they might find that you know there's a lot of reward it's a little more work but mm -hmm. there's not all the aftermath of destruction and trauma right. and something you said earlier um is another heartbreaking piece is some of these people who might be using a substance to deal with life pain or, or, you know, addiction, you know, either genetics or trauma or, you know, psychological issues, they may end up having more trauma because they get raped while they're drunk or they get in an accident while they're drunk. Absolutely. And Absolutely. then they have more pain that they want to self-medicate. I, I know very few folks that have been through any sort of you know substance use mm -hmm. history that have no trauma if right, i'm being honest exactly because especially in you know the world of 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 drugs right i mean mm -hmm. there's just there's a lot that you know has to be done in that world to survive and a lot of 
people that you have to be around who, you know, are not necessarily the most wonderful of, of folks. So if you didn't have it coming in, you probably are going to have it during that, that part of your life too. So it's, yeah. Right. And it's so significant too. I mean, I think that that's, that is one of the things in my experience in being able to work with, with people in recovery is that they go through so much. You yes. Know? And it just builds upon itself mm-hmm. because, you know, I can think of a couple of clients coming to mind now, one of whom had been through some trauma and, you know, it might have been a sexual assault. I'm not sure the initial trauma, but then she started getting into drugs for the first time. Mm-hmm. And then she had more sexual assaults yeah. and a DUI or some kind of, you know, car accident when she was on a substance. And it was just like adding to it yeah. and just making everything a cycle. Yes. A horrible cycle. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so this is really putting you on the spot, but, um, if you could think of all the many, many people that you've seen over the years and what advice they would give those are recovering and in recovery, what advice do you think they would give the 12 year olds or the 13 or the 14 year olds? Um, you know, I mean, I think that that's so hard. I, you would like to say, you know, <laughs> it's like the Nancy Reagan thing, like, you know, just say no, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just say no. If it was that easy. Yes. I, I have to say, I really just don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. I think that it's so, it's so complicated because I think that for some folks like I, like myself, I think it was just kind of predestined, right? I mean, and so I don't know that there was anything that would Mm -hmm. have stopped me Mm -hmm. from making those choices. At this point in my life, I can 100% say I'm glad that I, that Mm -hmm. I did because it's brought me to where I am. I would hope that, you know, people have the opportunity to make another choice. Um, It's such a hard thing. And I know Mm -hmm. that I I know some, some folks that have worked more in the prevention realm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard one. Yeah. It really is yeah. because I think, um, I think now, it, especially with our culture mm-hmm. and you know, kids these days. Yes, yes. <laughs> but we're dealing. I mean, I cannot imagine yeah. having to deal with what a teenage child is having to deal yeah. with in these times, especially with social media and you know, kind of like the the comparison and uh-huh. the amount of information that you have access yeah. to, you know, I mean, I think I honestly, I, I hate to sound pessimistic, uh-huh. but I don't necessarily see that addiction is going to be getting much better anytime right. soon, just with the way that the world is, you know, yeah. I think that if there were, if there were ways that you could get folks into, mm-hmm the prevention realm, I have to say, I, I would, it's probably going to be that connection piece. You know, mm-hmm. I know that, but see, if I say that, then I look at, you know, I had that, I had a life in, you know, horseback riding. I was super passionate about that and I just chose drugs instead. Right. So it's not like I didn't have the opportunity to do mm-hmm. something different. And I'm not sure really why I made that choice. Did you have good friends when yeah. you got involved? Yeah. I did. Yeah. So it's a, it's hard for me because I look at it like 
I think that there's these really obvious answers like, you know, mm-hmm. support and, mm-hmm. you know, a, a family that's involved mm-hmm. and then, you know, hobbies and mm-hmm. but I had all of that. And so it, it, for right. me, it's always been I'm just not the stereotypical, I guess, person right. of I've <laughs> There's really no explanation of why. Um, well, but the the curiosity, mm-hmm. you know, if you're kind of a free spirit, which I'm impressed yeah. with your free spiritness in in this whole podcast, because you were just so chill about it, open about it. You weren't like, I need a list of questions two weeks <laughs> ahead, which would have been fine. Like everybody has to work their own way. Mm-hmm. But you do remind me of myself. I'm kind of a spontaneous free spirit and like, we can just have a dialogue and it doesn't have to be too formatted, Mm -hmm. but maybe that spontaneity and that sense of adventure, you know, you're a rock climber. So we're analyzing you now, (laughs) but you know, you just, you're probably exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm going to be in the moment. What's the harm? Like, this looks cool right now. Let's give it a try. And unbeknownst to me, it was not the thing for me to do. Right. Right. You probably hadn't been warned by your parents. Like there's a really strong addiction history. I think that I was. I mean, I do remember. I mean, my my father's father, my so my grandfather, mm-hmm. you know, he passed away with quite a few years sober in AA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember hearing all throughout child. I mean, you know, my my grandmother divorced him during the times when you did not get divorced due to his alcoholism, you know, and I remember hearing that. And certainly, you know, my mother, God bless um, Mm -hmm. her soul, but she struggled with alcohol. So we grew up in that, seeing Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my sister watched me go through this horrible battle with my use. And you would have thought that all those things combined, she having the same resources that I had experiencing the same thing she would learn she would learn from me to do that no she did not you know so again there's so i'm always on the like i don't know sometimes it's just like a yeah throw of the dice and for sure yeah it's fascinating um but i can see why you don't regret it because look at how much good has been brought from your story and your recovery and do you sense that the people you work with feel a little bit more relatable or open with you because they know you understand what it's like? I think so. And I, I mean, I know I definitely had that experience with others, you know, I, but I, I do hate to, to, to say that I, I really, some of the best counselors, therapists, doctors that I've worked with in the field, though, have not been in recovery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are folks that get it too that necessarily, you know, haven't necessarily gone through it themselves. Right. Um, There's just kind of a thing that people have. Yeah. Um, But I I definitely do think I had a really kind of interesting experience in that when I first started off, I was very young. I was 24, 25. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I started working in the drug court, you know, I was you know, I'm little, I look also younger than I am, Mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't look like a lot of my clients. And so I think me coming in, it was like, who is this lady? What are you going to tell us about? You know, we've been using for, you know, a lot longer and, and, you know, who are you? But when I'm able to at least connect with them on, on some of those experiences, I think that that was, you know, gave me some sort of an edge to like, Yeah. yeah, just to, 
there's no judgment for me on yes. you using drugs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that you will not feel for me because I've I understand you know, that. I the temptation is that. real. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's for us, that's a big piece is again with the shame and guilt. I think that even if the person that we're, you know, in connection with, speaking with, working with, whatever, you know, even if they are not actually judging us, we're still going to feel like they are because yeah. we're judging ourselves. Right. Yes. And so. Um, I think at least if we're able to like speak it out loud, right? Then that it, that does provide a bit of reassurance, yeah. To at least start that process of like, okay, well, maybe, maybe you get it a little bit at least, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be fun if you ever want to do a little research project. I I would have so much fun coming up with a list of statements that people in recovery could look at and say that these would be my top three out of like 20 options and mm. it would be sort of like what i would tell these 13 year olds like or whatever age you know whether it be it's not worth it mm -hmm. there's a better way you know um the price you pay is is way worse than any benefit and and you can understand the the need for like what might feel like complete peace or you know slowing your mind down mm -hmm. or i just want to sleep or i want to have a joy or a bliss or a euphoria i've never experienced mm -hmm. i mean some of those short-term highs have got to feel like heaven and yeah. people want heaven they want perfection super appealing yeah absolutely but the aftermath is just you know the crashes i mean i don't even i'm not a specialist in addiction i can't even imagine some of the crashes that people have mm -hmm. and then wanting more and depleting i was reading a little bit about depleting dopamine mm -hmm. from you know and and you get all your dopamine for you know i don't know i'm just making up the amount but two weeks worth of dopamine comes out in one day and that feels amazing, but then you're out of dopamine for two weeks. Well, and I think that that's the part of, you know, the warning part mm -hmm. of the, of the cycle of that is that, you know, there, there's a, there's a really fun period of drug use where it feels very exciting mm -hmm. and it's fun mm -hmm. and it's, you know, and then it starts to kind of not be so fun anymore. And then there's this very quick transition to where it's no longer fun at all. It's mm -hmm. a necessity. Mm. And then it's a desperate necessity. Mm -hmm. And that part of it is just absolutely pure misery because not only is it that you're not feeling any of the fun anymore, it's feeling like this, I mean, you're chained to it, your whole entire life, all of your emotions, all of your thoughts revolve around that from the moment you wake up till the moment that you finally are able to go to sleep at night, you know, and I can just remember, I, I, every night I prayed that I would just die, mm -hmm. I, you know, and it, it's this terrible feeling of like, you know, and especially being so young, that's just not normal. <laughs> that's yes. like your life experience is like I hate this existence. I don't want to be on this earth anymore. Oh, and the you suicide know? risk must be horrible. And, it, at that and point. I, you know, for me, I did. You know, and that was kind of my first, you know, entrance into treatment was because I did have a suicide attempt early on and mm. during it, one of your lows. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. my! And so I mean, you know, I think that again, there there are there's consequences, and I think that that's that's the hard part of this is it's a roll of the dice again. It's I could be the person that is able to use or drink successfully, which is, you know, 
predominantly the majority of mm -hmm. you know our our world is you know we can come home from work and have a glass of wine and that's fine you know my mm -hmm. my husband can do that mm -hmm. but I can't mm -hmm. you know and so which one are you you just don't know yet right and it might take a while to figure out and that's the scary part of it as well you know I think a lot of folks that are in in recovery at some point might try to again roll the dice and they might really be able to hold it together for a couple days, couple weeks, couple months, sometimes a little bit more than that, you know, and then suddenly everything falls apart again, you know. That's a great point. And I love to use the image of Russian roulette. Mm -hmm. And when you get to a point where you just don't care and maybe yeah. sometimes, like you said, you roll the dice and when life is okay and not too, too bad, it goes okay. Mm -hmm. But when life is really hard for some reason, whether it's I'm unemployed, I'm having marital problems, I'm raising children and I'm like really failing at that or I feel like I'm failing, mm -hmm. then you roll that dice and you just can't control it because you just need more numbing or mm -hmm. you need you need to sleep more. Right. Um, it's amazing how many people I've talked to who get into some addictive stuff over sleep. Mm -hmm. I think that's even what kind of killed Michael Jackson. I mean, mm -hmm. he was looking for peace and sleep and just more and more of that drug eventually mm -hmm. overdosed. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and things aren't always equal for everyone. And then even within the person themselves, like you said, it might depend on the stage in life and mm -hmm. what they have going on. They just don't care what happens to them. Yeah. They're being reckless and they don't, if it kills me, it kills me type of thing. Mm -hmm. Wow. So um, anything else you want to say about the daily work that you do? Or do you feel like that's kind of, I know you mentioned something about predatory treatment and the Florida shuffle. <laughs> um, I don't know if you want to move on to any of that or you want to talk a little bit more about the, you know, the work you're doing here in the Hamilton County. Yeah, so I started... Um working at the Hamilton County Recovery Court a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. And that has been an amazing experience. It's, I bet. You know, it's, <laughs> I thought for a minute there that I really wanted to like take a break from the drug court world. And so when I moved to Chattanooga for a little while, I, I was just working in uh, community mental health, but then all of a sudden I somehow got a little bit more wrapped up in getting their program off the ground to, to start treatment for their new drug court. Uh -huh. And then this position opened up and it just felt like yeah, I'm just this is just what I I'm a drug court person. <laughs> wow, what you're meant to do. I just love this world. I really do. It's amazing. So I'm back in it all the way and it has been amazing. We've got um, this incredible team of people. We've got two incredible judges. We've got um, two programs. So we have um, folks that have felony um, uh -huh. um, charges and then we have misdemeanors. So we've got uh -huh. two different judges. We've got two separate teams mm -hmm. and we've got just an incredible group of folks that are so devoted to this program. It's been really amazing to be a part of it. They are, you know, a lot of these folks are, don't have the background in the treatment realm at all. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, we've got district attorneys, public defenders, private attorneys who've all volunteer their time, tons of their volunteer you know, How time. How amazing. It is a really cool model. It really is. And the people that get involved, you know, really see that this thing is an alternative to, you know, I like to say in air quotes, like business as usual, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. Like this is, this is an opportunity to make a huge change in their community. And 
I was really lucky when I got into this program because, you know, the folks that they'd already kind of compiled to, to do this. And this, this is an older um, recovery court. It's been around for quite a while, but the team is just, is just amazing. Wow. And we work with amazing clients that are in our program. You know, COVID has been really interesting. So I started in November of last year. So, mm-hmm. you know, they had right shut the down. Yeah, they had completely shut down the courthouse for quite a few months. And, you know, it's been that in the recovery world, COVID has been a real treat because oh, <laughs> we're talking yeah. about the opposite of, uh, you know, addiction being connection. Yes. Well, now all of a sudden you have to isolate. <sighs> and now all of a sudden we can't provide all of the services that we, you know, normally would like be able to provide. Like the groups and yeah. things like that. Oh no, so, that you had to reinvent your program. We had, yeah, everyone, every drug court, every, every treatment program has had to completely reinvent how we provide services during this time and Uh, it has all felt like we've just been working in crisis and doing the best we can but you know getting sober during a pandemic i i cannot i cannot imagine but i mean you know our participants have worked so hard to just you know do the best they can with what you have with what they had Uh, so they've really had it stacked against them and it that's been that's felt really unfair to them um it's just another consequence of this thing but you know we've we've pushed through and we've created new things and there's been a lot of you know really kind of cool things that have come about it some you know innovative ways of of doing things differently that we hadn't have and wouldn't have thought of before so there's always some silver lining but um like improvising and finding there are some disappointing changes and some really unexpectedly great improvements Mm -hmm. that you would have never even thought of yeah wow I'm so excited to learn about this and it's just really encouraging to see that there are models for helping people because I remember hearing about people getting out of prison and the recidivism rates Mm -hmm. and just to think about what really works and what is sustainable and I work with you know sometimes teenagers who have a father or mother um, who is in prison for drug issues and they just can't get sober and they'll, they'll get back out of jail and they'll hope that they stay sober forever. And then maybe a year or two later they relapse mm-hmm. and it's just heartbreaking yeah. to see that kind of pain and just missing a parent, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Then I think that that's part of what is great about the recovery court model is that again, we have that time and we're able to, provide more resources than than we would have been able to if it was you know someone that we just had you know a month to work with you Mm -hmm. know and so it is that holistic approach with you know let's figure out what exactly it is that you need and we can actually try to help provide those services and support and resources for those specific things so it is really cool to be a part of that to see how much different you know and i've i've worked in other you know, treatment modalities before. And that has always felt like the the kind of crux of it is that you don't get the time <laughs> mm-hmm. because this all takes a lot of time. You yeah. I mean, I don't think that I started to begin to think clearly for like six months, you know? And so there mm-hmm. was no way that I could have been expected to made, make any sort of sound decision, even beginning till and yeah. until that time, you know, especially as a child. Uh-huh. So. I'm glad you mentioned that because mm-hmm. talk about brain fog on steroids. 
I mean, I heard an interesting analogy from a, a client of mine who had lived in New York City, worked with apparently the alcoholism guru in New York City. Mm -hmm. And two things that I heard via that patient um, were that um, that alcoholism creates like these tectonic shifts in your brain, oh, yeah. kind of like the tectonic, you know, the the continents and the the world's plates. And have you, you know, have you heard or something similar to well, that? Well, absolutely. And when you're talking about so the the dopamine and the serotonin, I mean, when we're like flushing our system out <laughs> by Detoxing? using drugs, uh -oh, right? We deplete the system, right? And everything is imbalanced, and that doesn't just fix itself have not a ripple know? effect it and not a, to yeah. mention a lot of the substances that that we use actually eat away your brain tissue and I, i'm sure you've seen like the before and after your brain on drugs well the, but it's 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 brain true you yeah. know and i mean it's it's literally especially with with certain types of drugs i mean there are divots and holes in your actual brain structure you know oh good thing is, is that a lot of it, it 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 gets healthy again and it can grow back but that's like six months to two year process for that wow. brain tissue like to brain regenerate. Damage. It is, you know, and our, you know, things are not firing correctly like they used to. And so, I mean, that in itself is a whole journey just to be able to, and I can remember, you know, I was a smart kid. I was mm -hmm. a straight A student. Mm -hmm. I have never been able to, my memory is permanently damaged wow <laughs> for sure wow. it's just never quite gone completely yeah right. back to par <laughs> oh wow just three four years of that as mm -hmm. a teenager when your brain is still plastic that and... probably didn't help right. <laughs> during That's my in my developing years yeah. <laughs> three or four of my developing years were not developing <laughs> Oh man, that and that's the kind of motivation that I think if people mm -hmm. could see the science behind it and just what's happening, it yeah. might be a really great motivator. Like, find a different way to cope mm -hmm. or have fun. Um. Wow. Well, is there anything else sort of burning in your head or your heart that you kind of want to share, or do you feel like you shared most of it? <laughs> Are you talking about the treatment stuff? Well. <laughs> If if you want, yes, I, no, um, I would love to talk about that. It, this is kind of part of my my newer journey, I uh -huh. would say. Um, you know, when I was my final stint in treatment, I was sent away to this place in Utah, mm -hmm. and I was there for I think a little over nine months collectively. Um, mm -hmm. You know, back then and still now there this was like a really kind of a hot new age way of treatment uh -huh. uh, especially with adolescents where you know you send them to these places and the mentality was really like we're gonna break you down and then build you back up mm -hmm. right the breaking down process was brutal though you know and i went through that experience you know i, I it, it was terrible I, I i always knew that it was terrible mm -hmm. um and then I just, you know, I, I, in my head, I always knew that I wanted to do counseling mm -hmm. for some reason, like very strongly, this is what I wanted to do. And then, you know, just kind of moved on with it. There were always memories that would come up, you know, experiences that I had at this place, but I never really thought too much about it. And then a little over a year ago, I was just like one day just on my Instagram feed and this like trailer for this 
documentary that was done about Paris Hilton came up on my mm-hmm. newsfeed. And I, I don't know, I've never been like particularly interested in Paris Hilton, but this thing, I just like wanted to watch it. So I just watched the trailer. And in this this little little bit of information, she's talking about how she went to this treatment center in mm-hmm. Utah when she was a kid. You know, she had been acting out and gotten in, probably involved in drugs and alcohol and stuff. And she had gotten sent away. But what caught my attention was she said the name of the place. And I remembered this place was kind of like the the sister program of the place that I oh, went wow. to. Like if you got kicked out of one, you would go to the other. Mm. So I very much like recalled the name of this place and I thought like, that's really interesting. And so when the movie came out, I watched the movie and she is in, in this movie able to really communicate about how this place affected her long-term and the trauma that she experienced there. And for the very first time in my life, I realized like, oh my God, I was absolutely traumatized in this place. And all of these experiences just kind of like come flowing back. Mm. And she's talking about how in relationships, it's you know still affected her and how she is in her personal life. And it is all just like hitting me like a ton of bricks. Oh my. And so they had started this kind of advocacy group where they're doing all this work on, you know, shutting these places down because mm-hmm. there's a lot of these still in operation. Mm-hmm. And so I started going, you know, they have Facebook pages and it's called um, Breaking Code Silence is like the, the name mm-hmm. of it. It's really interesting. Um, but that's it's a all movie with Paris Hilton. Well, that's the... just what the advocacy group is oh, called. Oh, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Breaking Code Silence. I think the Paris Hilton movie is just Paris Hilton. <laughs> but I started looking on these on the Facebook pages and um, you have all of these now adults who went to these places and a lot of whom went to the very specific school that I went to Wow! and who are like talking for the first time about their experiences. And now it's this like collective experience with all of us kind of like reading each other's stories and realizing that, oh my gosh, like what I went through was was not okay at wow. all, you know, as a child and and thinking about it in, in a very different way. Um, you know, it was, it was a really interesting experience for me. And I think that that has really opened up my eyes to kind of, again, that like this need to work in this field. Um, mm-hmm. I think that maybe I like wanted to be one of the folks that was actually helping. Offering people. healthy, helpful <laughs> things and not traumatic, abusive mm-hmm. treatments. Wow. Because as I look back, you know, I mean, I think, you know, the the stories that I can remember and and the things that that they did to these kids. I mean, first of all, a a tremendous amount of sexual abuse and assault. Mm. And that was something that I, again, just very fortunately, I think just because of my age, I was I was a little older. Mm -hmm. I did know how to kind of play the game. I had been Mm -hmm. through treatment several times before um, and I'm you know, fairly intelligent. So I pretty quickly realized like, you don't fight against this. You Mm -hmm. go with the game. Um, But I mean, you have adults who are, and I mean, I can remember, I mean, you sat in the middle of the room while everyone screamed at you and told you that you were, you know, trash and you were disgusting. And, you know, and, and, and that was, that was, that was like a Wednesday. (laughs) Um, It was brutal, you know, and they had, you know, all these folks that, you know, 
they would call them counselors, but when I look back, like they were all I remember in college. So I know they didn't have an actual degree and, you know, and they were kids themselves and they were being trained by these like, you know, other therapists who, when I look back, you know, can you imagine like, would you ever say (laughs) Mm -hmm. to like a 17 year old girl, like you're disgusting in a treatment setting? Who would ever think that did any good at all? But that's what they did. And that was again, that, that's, that was the, that was the modality was the, we're going to tear you down and build you back up, you know, but you had all these, these kids there that were there, a lot of them just solely for mental health issues. So a lot of them there weren't even there for substance use. They were there for depression, extreme depression, many suicide attempts and mental health disorders. And that was still the modality. And so when I think about, you know, again, and I think that that's really, you know, put into perspective, again, why I've always really loved this concept of evidence-based training, Mm -hmm. because isn't it, great to be yes. able to say that what you're doing is actually helping yes this you know? has been tested and tried you know and found true mm-hmm. oh my goodness and i think that that's been you know a huge part in our world you know being a treatment provider is like i'm i pride myself in that and that it is very important for me to be knowledgeable about what is actually Mm -hmm. effective and what is not because there were things even when i first got into the field i look back and things that i learned and things that i said things Mm -hmm. that i did that i'm like oh my gosh that was not helpful Mm -hmm. you know that was not what i should have been doing i've learned better practices practices now. now you know um and i think that that there's really kind of two kind of therapists though there's ones that really yearn for that and then there's some that don't so much right so mm-hmm. just kind of get stuck in doing what we've always done mm. um but i think that that's that's a really i think that's why i do love the drug court model mm-hmm. so much because it doesn't just like suggest that you mm-hmm. use quality treatment uh-huh. it demands it like that's the expectation uh-huh you know and i think that that's that's one of the things that I have really loved about being able to, you know, help other providers as well as like if this is, you know, we have this this opportunity to help folks that this might actually be their only opportunity for support. So like it is our responsibility to do the absolute best that we can in the time that we have with them, you know, and that's that's like that's wonderful. It makes me so happy and the fact that you have used your own struggles whether it be just the addiction or in the recovery but also an abusive treatment center Mm -hmm. to just feel your passion and your spark for helping others and prevent them from having to go through some of what you did Mm -hmm. and also your gratefulness and you're not taking for granted the opportunities that you had that you want everyone to have Mm -hmm. and you're on a mission which i just love it's just so inspiring to see your passion and i think this is a really neat you know segue with the listeners to think about no matter how old you are but like what is your calling in life and what motivates you in life and it's really amazing to see how many people might use a surgery or a a loved one's cancer Mm -hmm. or something an accident something they've been through to to say i'm going to use this to try to help people i'm going to become a surgeon or i'm going to become a therapist or a social worker 
mm-hmm. or a, you know any kind of a teacher, like a teacher changed my life or something that they went through. And you know your passion for not only doing this type of work, but for saying this might be the person's only attempt. Mm-hmm. And this is true for me as a therapist too. Right. You know, some people will have one bad experience with therapy and they never try again. Yeah. Uh, and I, but I get people that have been to three or four and some of them might've been terrible and some were okay, Mm -hmm. but some people will give up or they won't try again or their families won't. So getting them the right help the first time is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And I think too, the, the thing, you know, as a provider, it's really important for other providers to be aware Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you know, especially in terms of when we make referrals, you know, and when we, or even if we're not a provider and we're someone that has someone in our life that has gone through addiction, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to, to send folks to a place or, mm-hmm. you know, give someone the opportunity or watch a loved one go into treatment. Um, and then if it, you know, is, and I put this again in air quotes, yeah. unsuccessful, yeah. Um, which that's a really, you know, hard way to measure treatment experience. But uh-huh. sometimes then we say, you know, oh, well, we, you know, they got treatment and it didn't work. Well, sometimes the treatment that was provided to them was not helpful for them. Right. Especially if it, you know, is you know, not only, and I, you know, I talk about, you know, with, with you before we've talked about the, the concept of predatory treatment, you know, there are a lot of, of treatment centers, especially in our country, mm-hmm. um, that they, they are now calling like predatory treatment centers, you know, and there's, all, there's a very dark world in our mm-hmm. world as far as, as that goes. And um, there are places that have opened up with the sole function of making money, you know, billing for insurance, um, you know, drug screening is something that folks can bill a lot of money for. And so there are even kind of the the darkest of the places are really like human trafficking centers where they bring people into treatment. They'll fly them there. Um, you know, they pay for hotels until they can come pick them up. And then they kind of just keep them away in treatment. Some of them even providing substances for these folks so that they continue to use so that they can continue to say that they need treatment. It's very, very, very upsetting. Yeah. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And a lot of these places, you know, one of the things that I had heard in Atlanta was something that had started to happen where people were going and sitting in on AA meetings and NA meetings and kind of like watching for the person that came in that was you know very like outwardly appearing to be struggling in their addiction and then approaching them after the meeting and say we can help you we'll fly you to florida like right praying now. on the vulnerable <laughs> yeah it's a oh. crazy crazy thing you know oh and so goodness. um you know one of the things that and we go to like a national drug court convention every year and and they they had a, a big training on predatory treatment practices and you know, they talked about the signs of, of things that you can look out for. And a lot of these places, you know, are not certified. And so it's important to make sure, you know, are these places certified mm-hmm. and, and supervised? Um, you know, what is the licensure level of the staff that's working there? A lot of these folks don't necessarily have an actual, you know, education or mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. in this field and want to do the right thing. You know, even if I look back at the place that, that I went to, I think a lot of those folks really thought that they were doing the right thing. That's how they had been trained, you know, but 
what's actually going on in there? You know, do you actually know what's going on in there? Right. Especially for adolescents, because that's one of the biggest things about these places is that's all by design. They put these things in place. They don't allow, they, you know, I wasn't allowed to speak to my parents very often, mm-hmm. especially when I first got there, but then they train the parents and they say, this is what she's going to say that she's going to yeah. make up these stories about things that were actually going on, but they are going to say that thing that's going to let your parents know that. So they're already kind of prepared and expecting it. So they don't believe you, mm. you know, when you say these things are happening, you know, and so they keep you there. And these places are very expensive. If, you know, if, and I know for, for mm-hmm. my parents, our insurance had, you know, stopped paying for my treatment because they had paid for so mm-hmm. much. And so they were doling out cash to this place, you know. Um, yeah, I had a client once say that her letters that she was writing were either being cut apart yeah. and, and some of it was omitted or mm-hmm. not sent. And I mean, it was so scary. She was like writing her parents begging for help mm-hmm. and saying they're not feeding us or they're mm-hmm. doing this. and and you know it was getting cut out or mm-hmm. or like you said they were told censored. oh they're gonna lie yes yeah, censored well and and, and yeah. that was i never spoke to my parents without a staff member sitting observing us i mean oh that was goodness. that was always the case you know and there were legitimate things that were happening while i was there i mean they would lock kids in a padded room for days weeks months at a time i watched that they did that to us constantly oh we would have to goodness. sit in a chair for weeks at a time and not speak you know, and I mean, and this is not a normal existence for a teenager. That's trauma that could cause like dissociation and absolutely dissociative personality disorder and, and trust issues. I mean, the amount of, you know, and if I look back to at the, the kind of relationship problems that I've had because of that, it was all a game and it was all manipulation and it was, you know, they pitted the, the kids and, you know, against each other and we had to like, you know, if you didn't cry enough, you weren't getting in touch with your feelings. But if you cried too much, you were being dramatic. So it was like everything that you did was, you know, like a game, um, you know, and just Survival that having to something. exist like that for so long, you know. And I think, you know, so there, there's that part of it. And I, and there's lower levels of that as well. I think mm-hmm. a lot of the the other kind of predatory treatments, too, are just, you know, again, like there are long-term treatment centers and some of these places are even faith-based which makes mm-hmm. it even more heartbreaking yeah. because you you know you feel like at you the time we're yeah. right um but you know and I'm, we're gonna work them on a farm for a year but uh-huh. <laughs> you know or they're like you know they they create this whole buy-in situation where you get like a couple months clean they make you the house manager and then all of a sudden you're you're you know, invested you're or invested tied in, in or... this right and so there's you know and not to say that that doesn't happen in some really great treatment centers right. as well but you know there's things to kind of look out for um like manipulative tactics mm-hmm. and strategies that rope you in further yeah. wow mm-hmm. so there is a dark world in there and so i think that that's just something that i me personally, I hope a lot more people start to acknowledge and and understand and is that, you know, there's a there's a really beautiful, wonderful side of treatment and there is a dark side of it. And then there's also just like an accidental ignorant side of it where there are some folks who just are you know, maybe yeah. have the best. Well, of you're just trusting. Yeah, but, yeah. But are not actually providing mm-hmm. the best care for for the person that's there. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And sometimes people who 
get duped or tricked by mm-hmm. some a situation like that feel they feel stupid and they blame themselves mm-hmm. and it's like listen you don't want to go through life being extremely paranoid and if you've never heard of and you know institution like this oh yeah you're not how would you know yeah, because you're you expecting think? for these places to be yeah. a, these people in the helping profession and they have professional marketers yeah. i mean again and it is like it's it's very well done that these i mean it's a it's a really expensive trick and i'm it's, glad you're getting the word out mm-hmm. honestly because i i had heard a few very you know incidental you know stories from you know, I know one eating disorder patient and then one mental health patient that was in something similar. Mm-hmm. But I haven't heard about it enough to know that this is a, you know, been a really scary thing in the substance abuse, you know, treatment centers mm-hmm. and things. That's really scary. Mm-hmm. Good to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so when you're making referrals, make sure you do your research. Yes, for sure. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, this has all just been really eye-opening and inspiring, and I really appreciate you sharing your stories and your experience with us. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.